I have been teaching Wednesday nights for um, 18 years, 18 years. And I don't know if I've ever taught this before. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. You know, this is something we allude to. This is something we talk about. I don't know if I've ever actually done a teaching on this. And it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating what this means and what this represents. Just, just a couple quick tidbits here. We do this excellent Wednesday, and it's our time to stop and say, this is why we focus on Christ. We focus on his death and what that means. So, excellent Wednesday, we focus on his death. Sunrise, we focus on the tomb being empty. That's at 7.15. And then we have two services, obviously, Sunday, where we focus on Easter and what that means and represents. Real quick, I'm just going to get this out there. I don't know if I've ever fully explained on why we have Excellent Wednesday. We have Excellent Wednesday because going back years ago, before we actually had a church building, we were not able to meet on Friday, Good Friday. If the school was closed, we weren't able to have church because we met in a school. So and since we couldn't have Good Friday, we had our Good Friday service on Wednesday. So we just thought it would be funny to call it Excellent Wednesday, Good Friday, Excellent Wednesday. Well, over the years, it kind of just took off. And now we have Excellent Wednesday. And this is something we've always stopped and just done to stop and really signify Jesus' death on the cross. Now, sometimes these messages come across somber. It's a somber event. When you really study out what Christ went through on the cross, yes, we know the joy that comes afterwards. But at the moment, it's somber. You have to remember the events leading up to this. Events leading up to this was the Last Supper, where Jesus came and said, Judas, you're going to betray me. That's a somber event. He went to the garden and then he prayed, and the prayed drops of blood, sweat of blood. That's a pretty somber event. Early morning, he has the trials before the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod. He's beaten, he's spit upon, he's tortured. And then what happens is he's on a cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., And then from noon to 3, it's complete darkness. Now, complete darkness, noon to 3, because if you're going to pick a time of the day to be dark, you don't pick noon to 3. Quite the symbolism there of the darkness of sin. This is a somber event when you think of everything Jesus went through. And the reason Christ went through all this is because of our sin. So, these six hours He's on the cross, we have seven sayings, seven statements of Jesus, and they're all a beautiful picture of what Christ is going through, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. Let's go to the first one. First thing Jesus said on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What a way to start out. First thing he says, Father, forgive them, they do not what they do. Think about that. This is after he's been unfairly tried, before Sanhedrin twice, Pilate a couple times, Herod. This is after his back has been laid open with the lashes. This is after the crown of thorns have been stuck in his head. This is after he's been beat and spit upon. And he was beat to this point that the Bible says he was marred more than any other man. He was beat so much that he couldn't carry his cross. They had to grab Simon out of the crowd to help him do it. And the first thing he says... His Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If that is not an example that Jesus is trying to set to us, I don't know what is, and I'm just going to be completely straightforward with this. If you're harboring unforgiveness or bitterness towards somebody, I hope and pray this verse cuts right to your heart. Because if Jesus from the cross could look out through his blood-stained face, swollen eyes, and say, forgive them, 
What keeps us from holding on? To, I mean, why do we hold on? What keeps us from forgiving? A couple quick passages here. I love the passage in Ephesians. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The whole point is, I understand the forgiveness that Christ gave me, so therefore it's easy for me to forgive other people. When I run into somebody who harbors unforgiveness or bitterness towards somebody, what they're really showing me is, they don't understand how Jesus forgave them. Because there's no way we can harbor that when we fully understand what Christ did. That passage in Colossians, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. So straightforward. Christ from the cross says, I can forgive them. And that's an example that he's setting to us. Can we have that same type of forgiveness for the people that have wronged us as well? Let's go to the next thing that he said. Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great passage. You know what happened. Jesus is on the cross. He has the two thieves beside him. One of them is mocking him, and the other one says, Stop. This man has done no wrong. We're deserving of this, but he's not. And that's when the other thief looks at Jesus and says, Remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Assurance. Isn't assurance a beautiful thing? Assurance is a wonderful thing. Years ago, the way we used to do altar calls out here was, you know, Close your eyes, raise your hand. And every time I would do an altar call like that, um, there's always this one individual that would raise their hand every single time. So I finally pulled him aside one time and I said, you don't have to do that, you know? And the more we talked, the more I realized they did not walk in assurance. They did not walk in assurance that they were in. And I thought, what an awful spot to be in, to go through your life not knowing whether you're saved or not. You know, the classic question that as pastors we're always supposed to ask everybody is, if you would die tonight, do you know where you're going? Right? It amazes me how many people honestly hear that question, they stop and they say, I I don't know. I mean, I think I'm in. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm in. But I mean, I think I am in. Boy, I don't want you to walk that way. I want you to walk in assurance. Surely I say today, you will be with me in paradise. It wasn't followed up with, I mean, are you sure, Jesus? No. Assuredly. Assurance. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8. We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, as soon as you die, absent from the body, you're with Jesus Christ. As soon as you die. It amazes me on how many times I've been to deathbeds and we see the person pass away right in front of us. There's an instant, that person is immediately in heaven. We're mourning, we're weeping, we're struggling with sorrow, but that person has entered into eternal rest immediately. Immediately. This man, you want to talk about deathbed conversions. This man on the cross... As far as we know, he didn't get baptized. As far as we know, he didn't go through the No Grow Sin program. As far as we know, he didn't go through confirmation. And I'm not trying to pick on anything. As far as we know, he never took communion. You know what he did? He believed on Jesus and died. 
and he's in paradise. I tell you, if you have a loved one and you wondered, are they saved or not saved when they passed? There's parables. There's this example of where Jesus gives people opportunities at the last moment. This guy chose to take it. The other guy didn't. You know what else that shows me when it comes to teaching? I can give the same altar call, the same message. Some of your hearts will receive it, and some of your hearts will completely reject it. Two thieves saw the exact same thing, exact same thing. One rejected and mocked, and the other one is now going to be in heaven for all of eternity. What a wonderful blessing that is. 1 John 3.19 is a wonderful passage that basically says this. That even when we sit there in doubt and wondering that God is greater than our heart, that he can assure us that we're saved if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. What a wonderful assurance. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know how powerful that statement is? That when I get a chance to share Christ with somebody, I can look them in the eye and say, today I know you can go to heaven. Today I know you can have your sins forgiven. Today, I know that you can make your life right with Christ. All because of what Jesus did. What a beautiful thing. See what the next thing he said was. When therefore Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, that would be John. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. This is an interesting one. He's hanging on the cross. Every minute is one minute closer to death and agony and pain. He sees John with his mom, Mary. Woman, behold your son. And then he said, behold your mother. Basically, what he's saying is, John, take care of mom. This is why a lot of people believe that Joseph was dead at this time, that he was not around, so therefore John had to take care of it. Now, I put this passage up of John 13. John 13 is the passage of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus washed the disciples' feet... Right before his death. Now, imagine the worst pain you've ever been in. Imagine the worst agony you've been in, spiritually, emotionally, or physically. Imagine how awful you felt at that time. You know what happens when we go through pain? We become selfish. We become awfully selfish. We talked about a couple Sundays ago about that passage in Romans where it says how we're supposed to glory in tribulations. I was so blessed that week. I had two people that were going through awful physical pain contacted me, and they both said, you know what, Pastor, we're going to try to glory in tribulations. It's like, wow, somebody listens. You know, I mean, what a blessing. Jesus is going to die, and he wants to make sure mom's taken care of. Just remember the next time you come home from work, and you had the worst day ever. Don't be selfish. Go wash somebody's feet. Just remember the next time that no one pays attention to you and you feel, woe is me, and no one cares, no one understands, and you want to sit there and have your own little pity party in life. It's a good time to go wash somebody's feet. We all do it. I run into that struggle. I run into that struggle of no one understands what I go through. I run into that struggle of that selfishness of, whoa, look at my poor life. Jesus said, actually, I'm going to make sure everybody's taken care of. What an example of focusing on others, others, when going through trials and tribulations. That's the heart of Jesus. That's what we learn from the cross, is that Christ did this for others. And what a beautiful picture that is. See, the next thing he said was, about the ninth hour, this would be around um, 
near the end there. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Elah, Elah, lama sabachthian. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you go with me real quick to Hebrews, please? Anguish. Jesus was God, but yet human. Jesus suffered physical pain. He was human. Human. He had anguish. You know, I just got done reading through John, and and I love the gospel so much, I started reading through Mark. Do you realize how many times in the Bible, the Bible says that Jesus sighed heavily? Do you realize how frustrating it would be to deal with humans all day? I mean, think about that. You have people right now, and you're not going to admit it because you're good believers. You have people right now you can't stand at work. You have people that you probably can't stand in your family. You have people you can't stand at this church. Now, you won't admit it. And you have to deal with these people a few hours a day. Well, work's not a few hours a day. It's, you know, eight, nine, ten hours. Jesus purposely walked with these 12 disciples on a regular basis. And these 12 disciples were annoying more than you could ever imagine. There's one time in the Bible where Jesus says he looks up to heaven. And he says, oh, worthless and perverse generation, how much longer should I deal with you? That's your Savior. He was human. Now, he didn't sin, but he had anguish. So when you are struggling and you feel like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people believe it's at this time that the full punishment of the sin of the world was on Jesus' shoulders, if you will. And the Bible says that God turned his back on Christ. And this would be the only time that the Son and the Father did not have a oneness and a fellowship because Jesus was taking the full punishment for our sin. And that is actual quote from Psalm 22, if you want a deeper study. It's called a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus. And it gives you a hint of the punishment that Christ was going through. So why do we focus on this? Look at Hebrews 2.18. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And go to Hebrews 4, please, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us now hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Think about that. Somebody annoys you. We usually go to sin. Jesus was annoyed. He didn't. Somebody angers you. Jesus was angered. He cleansed the temple twice. He called the Pharisees that they were sons of hell. Yet he did not sin. Somebody annoys you, frustrates you. Somebody spits on you, beats you. Rams a crown of thorns into your head and mocks you mercilessly? Think about the mocking they did to Jesus. They put a bag over his head and punched him and said, prophesy who did it. That one's always bothered me because he could have done it. He could have taken three hits to the head and said, Sam Fred Bill. He's God. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, when you struggle and you're in anguish, it's my job as a pastor to point you right back towards Jesus. So when you come and you talk about how awful that physical pain is, I will pray with you, I will encourage you, I will give you verses, and then I'll tell you, you know what? You know who understands your pain? Jesus does. So when you come and you're battling something spiritually and you feel like God's forsaken you, And you open up your heart 
Have you ever done that? Have you ever opened up your heart to someone and you felt like it just fell on deaf ears? Have you ever fallen on deaf ears with Jesus? He understands anguish. When you're struggling with something mentally and you're full of just that worry, that fear, that anxiety, and you find your faith just starting to falter, you can go to Jesus because he knows what it's like to sit there and say, God, take this cup from me. See, the anguish, he gets it. He understands it. So when I see this verse of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It reminds me that Jesus understands the struggles and troubles that I go through. Let's go to the next one. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. What a strange little passage, I thirst. Do you realize Jesus, before he went on the cross, was offered something to drink. The Bible calls it sour wine. That was the best painkiller they had back then. That's how nice the Romans were. They were getting ready to strive stakes through your wrists and your feet. And so they would give you a little bit of sour wine to be a little bit of an anesthetic, or just to say a little bit of a painkiller, excuse me. The Bible says in Matthew that he rejected that. Now, at the end, he says, I thirst. Now, before you start thinking that he's saying, I thirst, because he wants the pain to be deadened, I don't think that's why he was saying, I thirst. I think this guy had lost a lot of blood. I think this guy, his tongue was sticking to the roof of his mouth. This guy, we know, he still has two really more important things to say. I thirst. Once again, going back to the end of life moments, it always fascinates me when you're at those times of, of, of the end and the person is still somewhat coherent. They always want something to drink. The mouth goes dry. Jesus was at the end of his life. He still had something to say. The passage I picked for that, John 1.14, is a really straightforward passage. It says, And the Word became flesh. The reason I bring that up is, this is the human side of Jesus. This is the human side of Jesus of saying, I need something to drink. And if you'd like a deeper study, we don't have time, and I wish we did. They give Jesus the sponge, if you will, on a branch of hyssop. H-Y-S-S-O-P. If you want a further study, study out what hyssop is in the Bible. It's something that is used for healing. It's something that is used numerous references in the Old Testament and New. There's a beautiful picture of why they chose hyssop. And I wish we had more time, but we don't. But study that out if you want something more. But this is the, this is the human side of Christ. I thirst. I mean, so when you're laying there on the couch and you're so sick, and you can't even remember what it feels like to feel good, Christ says, yeah, I know. I know. Next one, please. We've got two more here. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You're still in Hebrews. Can you go to Hebrews 10, please? It is finished. Those may be the, the three most important words ever mentioned in the entire existence of man. It is finished. Hebrews 10. When he's saying with it is finished, the sacrifice is complete, the penalty is paid, it is finished. I've shared with you before, I have a pastor friend that says, he did not say to be continued, he said it is finished. So you know what that means? That's all encompassing. You can't add anything to your salvation. It's finished. What are you possibly going to do that's going to help you get saved when he says it is finished? In the original language, this is what an artist would yell when they finished their work. 
It is finished. It's done. Put the paintbrushes down. We're stepping back. and We're not adding one more thing to it. I was reading one commentator who's a lot smarter than I am when it comes to Greek. When it says in bowing his head, it gave up his spirit. He said actually bowing his head means putting it back. It wasn't his head going down in defeat. His head going back saying it is finished. It's done. So just think about this. Think about this. You can't add to your salvation. It's finished. Now you can walk in the assurance of salvation. So now when you go share Christ with somebody, hey, it's finished. I got the good news. It's done. I can tell you everything you need to know. It is finished, meaning I don't have to add anything to it. I don't have to do anything to it. It's not that I have to pray more. It's not that I have to read more. It's not that I have to worship more. It's finished. I can just walk in the love of God. And as I walk in the love of God, that impacts me. See, I understand it is finished. But for so many years of my Christian walk, I always thought it was, it is finished, but I'm still going to do some stuff to help out. We've really been trying to train the boys to clean our house better. For two reasons. One reason. We don't have to do it. But we're trying to train them. So what happens is we send them downstairs to the basement. Go clean the basement. We come up. Boys, is it done? It's finished. Well, it's not. I mean, I go down. It's not. So there's that one definition of it's finished. Did you finish your supper? Yep, I finished it. But you didn't. Did you take care of everything? Yep, I finished it. I think it was Layden the other day. Layden, who's five, his job is to make sure the dog is fed and watered. Layden, did you take care of the dog? Yep, I finished it. I took care of it. There's no food. There's no water. But in Layden world, it's finished. I wonder how many of us have our own little world and our own little definition of it is finished. You really have to understand this. And Hebrews 10 gives us a little bit of hint to this. Hebrews 10 verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. That's what they did in the Old Testament. Animals were killed every day, left and right, all the time. Verse 12, But this man, capital M, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Please note, Old Testament, Every day, sacrifices standing, continually working. Jesus, one sacrifice, and I'm going to sit down now. Verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It is finished. Enjoy that. Understand that. Let's go to our last one. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father... And to your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. It was done. Can you go with me to John 14, please? It was done. I remember one time I had a job. And the job was one of those jobs where there really wasn't a set time to be off. It was more when the boss came, looked at the job and said you could be done. So you would work and work thinking you finished it, and it's like, yeah, he's going to come check, and I'd go home. And he'd come check it, and it's like, yeah, it's not done yet. I'll come back in an hour. So you'd work, come back, yeah, we got more stuff we got to do, it's not done yet. I'll, I'll see you again in an hour. And you never knew when you were done. And I can still remember to this day when he guy would come and say, okay, you're done, you can go home. And you got out of that door as quick as you possibly can. 
Jesus right here. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, you're done. Go home. And you know what the beautiful part about him going home is? John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus went home, and you know what he did? He made me a nice place. And he, gets, and he says, James, you get to come home too. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Psalm 116. Precious in the eyes of God is the death of one of his saints. They go home. So Jesus, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And it was done. It was done. Now... Excellent Wednesday. It's always the disappointing part of this service. We leave him on the cross. Now, you've got to come back Sunday to find out what happens. You already know what happens, but you know what I mean. See, here's the thing. He's not on the cross. And he's not in the tomb. Now, that's my favorite part of Easter, is I get to say, and you're going to hear me say it Sunday, so you don't even have to come Sunday, but come for the donuts. But on Sunday, I'm going to tell you about a hundred times, the tomb is empty. Because once you understand that the tomb is empty, you get it. Oh, it's finished. He went home. It's over. It's done. And, and really, all I do now is just work. And so my boss comes and tells me, James, you're done. Go home. Oh, thank you, Lord. That's all it is. We talk about death and we make death. No, death is, hey, go home. Well done. Good job today. Go home. Oh, amen, Lord. Amen. I heard a pastor teach recently. Why is it as believers, if we fully understand what death is, why do we still treat death like the world does? The scary, awful, horrible thing. When really death is the last time you ever have to clock out for work. And you're done. And Jesus said, it is finished. So when you look at these seven sayings from the cross, you see forgiveness. You see assurance. You see looking at others. You see this idea of going home. You see the idea of completion. It's finished. Completely changes the way you look at things. So the next time you're suffering in anguish, you know what Jesus went through. The next time there's that selfishness of what about me? Jesus says, what about others? The next time you're wondering, Lord, am I even yours? Today you will be with me in paradise. The next time you're having an awful day and no one else understands it, Jesus says, yeah, I was on the cross. I thirst. I get it. It all comes together. And this impacts what we believe, what we think, what we say. And we can't be the same. Just like we talked about Sunday. We walk in a newness of life. We can't be the same because of what Christ did for us. It is finished. What a beautiful picture that is. If the guys that are helping with communion would come forward. This is the best part of getting a chance to end with communion. 
Now, here at Harvest, we have what is called an open communion policy, meaning we don't have church membership. Communion is open to anybody that's here. Now, communion, there's two things to do. When it comes to communion, it says this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think it's important before we do communion, we do two things. First one is, if you have never understood what salvation is, and you never understood the assurance, you never understood what Christ really did for you, now is the time, today is the day of salvation, for you to stop and say, Lord, I get it now. I get what you did on the cross. Your death, just like we read in Hebrews, one man, one sacrifice, paid for all of the sins, and it is finished. And I accept that, and I believe that. But most of you that are here tonight probably already know that. This is why it says that we're supposed to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Psalms makes it very clear in Psalm 139. Search me and try me, O Lord. See if there's any iniquity in me and lead me in the ways of everlasting. That this is time for us to go quietly to the Lord and say, Lord, I examine myself, your spirit speak to me, and I confess to you these are the sins I'm struggling with. Because when I look at what you did on the cross... I want it to be finished, Lord. I want it to be done. And so I give my life to you. I give that to you, and I never want to walk in that sin again. And what a beautiful assurance that you can have with that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, your word says before we partake of communion that we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to examine ourselves to see where we're supposed to work on through you. Your word says, search us, God. Know our hearts. Try us, know our anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in us, and then lead us in the way of everlasting. If there's someone here today, Lord, that does not know you, I pray that you're speaking clearly to them what salvation is. But Lord, if there's someone here today that does know you, and they have allowed sin to set up camp in their lives, I pray that you're speaking to their hearts, that you died so that we can die to that sin as well. And Lord, that you live so that we can live as well too. As we partake of this and we think of what this cup and this bread represents, your blood, your body that took the punishment of sin, help us, Lord, now to come to you and to give you our areas of struggle and sin, Lord. Let's go to the Lord quietly, individually. Lord, at this time, sometimes it's so overwhelming when we think of and we think of how awful we are, but how wonderful you are. And you still love us. Lord, your grace, your mercy, we are undeserving of it. But that's the whole point, Lord. You just love us. Thank you for your love, your grace, and mercy. Thank you for your death and your resurrection. And Lord, we look forward to saying on Sunday that the tomb is empty. And we praise you in your name. Amen.